0: Every now and then you hit a brick wall, which is anybody who has written a term paper or written an article or written anything, mm. you will know that feeling of running to a brick wall. You just don't have the next idea.
1: My name's Andrew Lee, and welcome to The Good Life, a podcast about living a happy, healthy and ethical life. Although I'm a politician and an economist, this isn't a podcast about politics or economics about living a good life, which is an idea that goes back to the Greek philosopher Aristotle. What Aristotle meant by a good life was the life that one would like to live, a life with pleasure, meaning, and richness of spirit, the life that most of us were trying to live until everything else got in the way. In this podcast, I'll seek out guests, not because they're smart, but because they're wise. I'll speak with writers athletes and social justice campaigners, with people who've been lucky and those who've experienced hard times. I've found their stories fascinating, and I hope you do too. In my early 20s, I attended a Sydney Opera House performance of the Carl Vine Symphony, I think the fourth, with Ed Edvard conducting. I remember being completely struck at the time by the fact that I was listening not to a performance of a long-dead European, uh, but a a, a symphony written by an Australian who, in fact, was there on the stage talking to us about it. I suppose I'd always known intellectually that there were uh, living Australian composers, but to see one, to hear from one, and to hear an extraordinary piece of music produced by one Uh, made me think differently about classical music. Carl Vine's one of Australia's best-known composers, having produced seven symphonies, 11 concertos and music recorded on more than 60 CDs. His work's been performed alongside dance performances, theatre performances. He's arranged the national anthem. He's written music for the 1996 Olympics uh, closing ceremony. And since 2000, he's been the Artistic Director of Music at Viva Australia. Uh, he is one of Australia's great uh, artists in the, in the broadest sense and it's a delight to have him on the Good Life podcast today. Thank you, Andrew. Now, Carl, tell us about how it all began. Were, you, were your parents musical? Uh,
0: no, not at all, um, but they um, helped me in any way they could. I was an anomaly um, in that at the age of four I declared that I wanted to play a cornet uh, and I'd just seen a brass band playing it at some fair somewhere, and I said, I, I want to play that instrument there. Uh, and it was the cornet. And um, my mother didn't take it very seriously, but apparently I was very persistent, and took me to um, the only person they knew who would teach brass instruments. And he said, oh, if he can play, I normally don't take kids that young, but if you can play a note, I'll take him on as a student. So he handed me a cornet, and I played a note. Um, it was the first time I'd ever touched the instrument. So he took me on and he said, come back when you're five. So my mother has told me that she taught me how to read music, which I don't recall at all, but apparently mm-hmm. I could read music by the time I went back to Mr Sharp um, to, to learn the cornet. And so that... Here's where it all began, so I played cornet, I played trumpet, uh, E-flat, horn, most of the brass band instruments excluding tuba or euphonium, I didn't play the big ones, or, or trombone. Um, and then I just music was always part of my life. Uh, at the age of 10 I took up piano, so I discovered harmony for the first time, that was, that was a great discovery. And that's when I started composing and I thought this is great you can actually have two sounds at once not just the one that's available on a trumpet um, and so my earliest compositions date from the age of 10 and very shortly after that I Developed the idea that I would become a pianist composer and I would compose my own piano concerto and I would perform it with an orchestra and conduct the orchestra from the keyboard. <laughs> and so I was very that's clear a about ten that. 10 year old,
1: that's pretty precocious.
0: Yeah. Um, and I got very close to actually doing that. I certainly, uh, I've now written two piano concertos. I can't play either of them. I could have at one stage, mm. but I decided very wisely, I think, to give up piano. Uh, much later on.
1: And your transition from trumpet to piano was the result of an accident, isn't it? Do you fell out of a tree?
0: I fell out of a tree doing gym at school, and this was in the days before we sued people, because I'm pretty sure my parents could have sued the school for throwing me into a tree as a gym experiment. Um, And it fractured, fractured three vertebrae, and I couldn't play brass anymore, at least for a while. And so I took up piano, uh, on a more, I tinkered with the piano, but it would, became my primary instrument. I still played trumpet then until I was a teenager, um, and then at university I had to pick one or the other, and so chose piano to continue.
1: And the household you're in was was there a lot of music on in the background? Do you remember your parents? Almost
0: of- none. They had a radiogram, so but we never listened to the radio. Hmm. Uh, there was so there was a record player I only remember ever having two or three records they were LPs vinyl LPs and one was the soundtrack to South Pacific and the other was My Fair Lady and there were a collection of very old 78s and a hand wound record player and I used to listen to a lot of those but they tended to be light classics uh, the occasional opera aria Mm. and some odd things like kids albums uh, on 78s very little music there was however a pianola a player piano and we had a pretty impressive collection of rolls. so you'd put the role in you'd pump the pedals yes. and it would play the piano and that's how I initially learnt to play the piano just watching the keys go up and down so it was no surprise to me then how the piano worked when I turned my mind to playing it and I progressed, I think the first exam I did was grade three on the piano because I'd been playing music for mm. five years. And I think within two years I was at grade seven.
1: And the uh, the progression that you made through there, did that come at the, uh, in some sense, at the expense of other things? Was music just the driving centre of your life as a teenager?
0: It was my hobby and my delight. And so when I wasn't, I was very good at schoolwork, I was very <clears throat> conscientious, I studied well, I did all my homework, and when I wasn't doing that, then I would make music. And then going into my early teens, uh, I'm trying to think of the time scale, probably 14, 15, I discovered electronic music, uh, which was a particularly adventurous music teacher at school, at high school, mm. who introduced me to the music of Stockhausen. And then through what was available then on recording, which was Precious Little in Perth in the 60s, I managed to do a lot of research and do electronic music and used to pull apart electronic equipment, electronic audio equipment, pull apart tape recorders, and I made my own electronic music. This is through the 60s. Uh,
1: and uh, am I right in thinking that you got to meet Stockhausen at some point?
0: I did very briefly... Um, he was passing through Perth and discovered that he'd actually been sold a a not entirely correct bill of goods and what he was expecting to find was not there and the music department in fact consisted of a Tudor-style house on a hill (laughs) (laughs) with about 20 students in it and not these world-beating centre of musical education that he'd expected... So I I did meet him. He was around. I saw him. I didn't have any particular interaction with him except being in awe of this mm. rather daunting German um, intellectual.
1: What was it you admired about him?
0: Well, it was just the music. And this was I, I'm not for those who are aware of the music of Stockhausen. He had a, a radical change of style. At about that time, going into the early 70s, and I I don't know if there was a uh, a traumatic event in his life, but his music went from being incredibly organised and highly formal Mm. to the exact opposite, to being incredibly informal, improvised, random events, the exact opposite of everything he had done to that point. And then his later music became interesting because he coalesced these two approaches mm. and that became quite interesting later on, but I'd lost my interest in him by that point.
1: Uh, and so you're, uh, in the, through that period in the 1970s, you're principally a uh, performer, aren't you? You're uh, uh, doing uh, a pianist, both... Uh Uh, in in the Western Australian Symphony Orchestra you were performing with for a period there but also doing quite a range of different different performance uh, in in, in different venues.
0: Absolutely. There was a large number of music clubs and music societies all around Perth. Mm. I played with a lot of uh, members of the West Australian Symphony and so we would put on concerts with, you know, flute and clarinet and violin and cello and I would always play piano I was for a time the regular stand-in orchestral pianist uh, with the orchestra. I remember playing Shostakovich's First Symphony, playing the piano part, and Charles Ives' Three Places in New England, those particular pieces because they have very prominent piano parts. Mm. Uh, and also playing the Karl Orff Carmina Birana, which has two pianos, with my teacher, Stephen Dornan, who was playing the... Uh, second piano. And the um, conductor kept yelling at me saying the second piano part is wrong but I knew that that was my teacher playing the wrong notes and not me. <laughs> he didn't tell the conductor we'd swapped parts. Uh,
1: and, uh, and at this stage uh, how many hours a day is uh, are, you, are you practicing to be at that level?
0: I practiced a lot. So this now is moving into the time I was went to university. I would still have been playing piano for four hours a day, and so that was on top of I was started doing a, a physics degree, a, a Bachelor of Science at university, and I but I kept playing piano. I would sight read the Bach preludes and fugues over two days, so there's forty eight of them, mm. uh, and then the two and three part inventions, and I just played the piano all the time.
1: Were there Did you get better at practising as you went on, at at, uh, doing that, um, I guess what Anders Ericsson calls deliberate deliberate practice and so you're getting better feedback on what you're you're doing, you're pushing yourself harder each time?
0: I I think so and that was largely thanks to my teacher, uh, Stephen Dornan, who was a a practising pianist and and a fine teacher and at that time I was entering the what was then called the Instrumental and Vocal Competition is now, what is it now, the Young Performers Award, it mm. is now called. And I won the state division of that once or twice, I think, but I was never quite good enough to make it to the national finals, which were in, would have been in Sydney or Melbourne at that point. So that would have been my key performance outlets and, of course, then the exams. So I was doing the AMEB exam process. Mm.
1: And what did Stephen Dornan uh, give you that you wouldn't have otherwise learned about the process of becoming a better, a better learner of the piano?
0: Well, it, it's what every piano teacher does, talking about balance and contour and melody and how to bring out different voices within the piano, basically everything you need to do to become a better pianist. Mm. Uh, I... I suppose I was a natural musician, but the physical act of playing an instrument is an immensely complex thing, and you need there's a a large number of mental and physical attributes that you have to get into sync to do it well. Did you suffer
1: injuries at any stage through this?
0: Through playing? Through playing? No, no, not at all. Um, I, I think only if you were with um, Schumann who tried to strengthen his fingers using uh, weights. I think only if you do that <laughs> are you liable to to get damage but if if you're playing an instrument correctly you shouldn't experience um, particular damage
1: yeah uh, and you're uh, you're famous or um, perhaps infamous for uh, for being a perfectionist uh, for being extraordinarily uh, precise in uh, in your uh, the the instructions that accompany your compositions. With uh, I think one of your compositions is accompanied by the the uh, uh, the, the requirement that romantic interpretation should be avoided. Um, does this uh, do somewhat Germanic side uh, have its roots in your uh, performance and in in, in how you uh, came of age as a pianist?
0: I don't think so. It's, it's more to do with uh, how I developed as a composer and having a very particular idea of the way my music should sound. And it came about because of my first piano sonata and that this is the odd thing, that I'd played piano from the age of 10, but I had not written a piano sonata,
1: mm.
0: a proper piano sonata, by the age of 30. So I had 20 years of not being able to write for piano although I should have been able to. And it was only in the process I got a commission from Sydney Dance Company to write a piano sonata and it just happened to be at the time that I decided to stop playing the piano. And this was massively liberating and it meant that I didn't have to learn it. And I think what yes. the problem had been all, all the way along is I didn't want to make something so hard that I have to learn all these difficult notes but because I knew I was never going to play it or I hadn't intended to play mm. it I could write anything I liked and some other poor sod would have to put in the incredible back-breaking hours to learn how to play it and I think this was the the key to writing the sonata and that has been possibly my most successful concert work ever and it, it is now played, I don't know, 100 times a year in the States, it's played in Europe all around the world, mm. uh, but it took me not to play it to make that possible. But what did happen is after the first few performances a lot of people played it and they really shouldn't have and there were people for whom the technical demands were too great mm. Mm. and there is also a an approach, almost a school of piano playing that insists that you insert yourself in the music by adding rubato and rubato is italian for robbed uh but it means you are robbing time from the thing and you push and pull the tempo Mm. so if you were dancing a waltz you wouldn't go one two three one two three go one two three one two three one two three and that drives me nuts and hearing these (laughs) inadequate pianists (laughs) pretending to be inventive and inserting themselves into the music they're just playing it wrong Mm. And sometimes it's because they're incapable of keeping a solid beat. And you use rubato, you use that extemporaneous approach to disguise the fact that you can't keep a solid rhythm. And so that is where that instruction came from. It had driven me nuts for many years and in one of the, mm. the sort of final published versions of that work, I wrote a preface that said... Tempo markings are not suggestions but indications of absolute speed. Romantic interpretations to be avoided at all costs. And then it has bred this view that I'm a, a stickler for excessive accuracy. I'm not. I'm just a stickler for accuracy. First of all, you play it accurately and then you let it breathe. But you don't just push and pull the tempo all over the place because then you're not playing the music. I don't know what you're doing, but you're not playing the music.
1: Looking at your face now I can almost sense the uh, the physical pain that you go through when you're uh, experiencing your piece being played in a manner different from that which you intended. But what's it like to have it have the reverse, to have it played exquisitely?
0: Well, that's delightful. And it does happen, not all the time. But when it does happen, it's terrific. And I can think of, I wrote a uh, sonata for piano four hands, which is two people at one piano. And the first performance was, I, I will say, not good. The second performance uh, by completely different pianists was very good. Uh, but then I heard it played by an American piano duo from San Francisco, and it was perfect. And so I'd had one bad performance, one pretty good performance, mm. and then one excellent performance. And so then I knew that I had done what I intended to do, that it was possible to play it that the way that I thought it was possible. The problem is that you never know, because there are so many fine grades of detail in the performance process mm. you don't know how many mistakes you've made in the score and that maybe what you thought you put in the score isn't there
1: isn't there meaning uh, that it's not technically possible to play it in the way you composed so it?
0: either it's not technically possible or the score isn't good enough so that it is i've just missed out the important details, I thought they were in there but they weren't and the other instance of that was my third string quartet which I wrote in I think 93 or 94 and the premiere was at the Brighton Festival in England and it was played by the group that commissioned it and it was a hideous performance that was just nothing like the score whatsoever and it was a broadcast throughout Europe on BBC3 and so that was pretty depressing as well And I thought, well, I just have to swallow that and move on. And then it was played some years later by a group in Australia and it was not much better. At that point I thought, well, I've really i just made a bad mistake. I've written a piece that is too hard to play, it will never be played properly and I should just move on and forget about it. And then I heard it uh, 12 years after the premiere And it was, at last, exactly the piece that I'd written. It was the Goldner Quartet playing at at one of my festivals in Mudgee, at a chamber music festival, and it was magnificent. And it was the first time I'd heard it played exactly the way that I expected it should be played. It was the first time I knew that I hadn't simply screwed it up totally.
1: That must have been a, a great surprise as well as a pleasure.
0: Well, it, it, was, uh, it was quite crazy because I went back to thank the quartet after the performance and I discovered I was crying. And it was like this 12 years of this sense of failure and that it was my fault that I had written something in the wrong way. And so it was just this relief after such a very long time of, not, uh, of believing that I'd failed.
1: You must often meet performers uh, before they're about to perform your work for the first time. Do you do you try and set them at ease in those cir- circumstances? Because, it, you know, for people who are used to playing the music of dead Europeans, it must be somewhat intimidating to have a live Australian sitting in the
0: audience. It, it's always intimidating. So, yes, uh, as a composer, you, it's your responsibility to try to set them at ease. It's trickier now because I have a reputation and so even if I'm as nice as I could possibly be, people still assume that I'm going to be quite um, uh, tricky or demanding.
1: Forthright, perhaps. <laughs> well,
0: and, and I am forthright, and um, so that, that's my other reputation as not um, gilding any lilies. But I also want them to relax because it's, mm. it's, it's their performance, Uh, Yes, I wrote it and I have particular opinions about the way it should go, but so can the performer. And occasionally performers have done things that I didn't want them to do and it's worked. And so now at the the ripe old age of 62, I can happily say, well, I don't know everything and that it uh, is entirely possible that there are other musicians who can actually play my music better than I thought it was possible. Mm, mm.
1: You know, in terms of how your uh, composing style has evolved, uh, people talk about the change in style in the in the mid-1980s. Tell me a little bit about what precipitated that and, and how you characterise your cha- change in, in approach.
0: Well, it was a single event that led to the change. And the change actually isn't as radical as I thought at the time. Listening back now to music I wrote before and after, but there was... Uh, a piece I had to write in 1986 for a friend who had died. And I'd written quite a lot of music at that point, chamber music, I still hadn't written my first piano sonata, uh, but chamber music, my first symphony, quite a lot of things. But writing something for a friend who had died, and it was for his family and for his partner, and all of a sudden I realised that I was not in my music, that my music was clever, it was uh, intellectual, it was um, well written, but it wasn't actually me. And that in this case, it was so personal, it had to be me Mm. for the memory of my friend and for his partner and family. And so I had to write a recognisable singable melody and a recognisable harmonic sequence, a sequence of chords that you could recognise and say, well, that is a piece of music. And that was a change of approach to what composition meant and acknowledging that no matter how clever your musical architecture is, how you construct the piece, it has to be part of yourself as well. Mm. And so, as I said, the change in effect and in the long term, wasn't that radical. It was really a change of emphasis and allowed me to bring back more old-fashioned musical ideas, the ideas of tonality, of major and minor, of the interplay of chords, which turns out I really love. But those, all of those approaches had been deprecated for decades and all the way through my training. Mm. It had been concerned with avoiding consonants. It was all about encouraging dissonance.
1: Did you find yourself uh, happier composing with a little less dissonance and a little more consonance?
0: Well, it was at that time a very difficult thing to do. And there was a complete... Well, there was actually a war going on In the composition fraternity, it's absurd to think of it now, but there was the complexists, the modernists, and the minimalists. And somehow I fitted, although I wasn't a minimalist, I fitted in that camp, but the the, uh, complexists and modernists regarded everything with a major triad as ipso facto absurd and ridiculous. So simply (laughs) the use of a major chord made you less of a person. It actually turned you into an idiot just by virtue of being there, and it was really hard to combat that. Mm. And indeed, you know, Stockhausen would have been on the side of the the modernists that you you should never ever use a major chord.
1: So your hero for, who passed through Perth would have thought you an idiot. Yes, that, absolutely. Uh, that music of the absolutely.
0: Way that is. And and all of the uh, people who. Follow that aesthetic, or and, and it was most of the teachers of composition at the time, and so to take the opposite view, which borrows from Terry Riley and the minimalists, but is not the same thing, was a very difficult stance to maintain.
1: Did that require a certain level of um, personal maturity in yourself? Was it? I mean, you've spoken about it as uh, in respect to an external event, the the passing of your friend, but did it also reflect uh, a greater self-confidence uh, in, in you at that moment?
0: Not at that moment, no. I think in the subsequent decades, yes. Uh, b- but it didn't happen overnight. Mm. And it's it's still... It's not a struggle, but I'm now intrigued by this... And this, to the non-musicians listening, that this is a rather subtle um, distinction to make, but the division between writing tonal music and non-tonal music, so music that you would hear from Beethoven, Brahms, Mahler, that sort of music, to more demanding music, say uh, Stravinsky or Schoenberg or Mm. one of the more modern extremist composers. And so what does really intrigue me is the boundary between the two and I, I now take great delight in stepping on either side of that boundary and seeing how I can change the expectation of the ear by inhabiting that netherworld in the middle.
1: And you then go into a, a very productive phase in your, in your career churning out a lot of work through the, the particularly the, the first half of the 1990s and uh, and then you you do this unusual thing. You you take a sabbatical uh, at this moment in your career in which uh, you you've been uh, producing a, a vast amount of music. You uh, you press the pause button for what three, four, five years.
0: Uh, it was four years all up. Yeah.
1: Tell me about what precipitated that and and how it felt.
0: Well, it was as you say. I'd been writing an awful lot of music, and that's pretty much all I was doing I didn't have another job I wasn't a performer anymore Uh, occasionally I conducted but not very often and so I was just writing 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 and it would appear that my career was doing well I had a a CD by the Sydney Symphony of my first three symphonies Mm. out on disc I had quite a number of recordings coming out of, of everything I'd written and two things happened first of all I simply got very, very tired of writing. And I would have to write... There was one year I wrote my first piano concerto and a piano solo and then my third, my, my second piano sonata all in the same year. That's a lot of piano music to write in a year when there are only so many things you can do with a piano. It actually takes a while to think them all through. And the what broke my compositional back was there was going to be a recording of my 4th symphony and I'd never been very happy with it. I think the one you heard by the way was my 6th, not the 4th. Right. But the 4th symphony had not been well devised. That was a work where I made a number of basic errors in the score. So I had I'd spent this massive amount of time writing piano music piano music, and then I had to sit to and deconstruct my fourth symphony and put it back together again. And that was an incredibly difficult process because I had to think back 6 years to when I wrote it. And at the end of that I thought, well here I am, this is the peak of my career. I don't I'm not terribly well off financially, and I didn't mind that. It's just I've been working so hard. Mm. And I didn't feel any better off than I was a decade before when I wasn't successful. So I thought, if this is success, do I really need it? Is this what I need to do for the rest of my life? And so I simply said, all right, that's it. I'm not writing concert music anymore. And for uh, two years, I didn't. I then started writing a little bit of um, commercial music because I had no money. And so I wrote a couple of film scores and uh, something for Sydney Dance Company, which was... like a pop electronic score and a couple of telly movies, that sort of thing. Mm. But I didn't write concert music for four years. And at that point, I could have actually spent the rest of my life not composing. In terms of my long-term career, it was a gaping hole that really took all of the momentum out of my career at that point. So it was a dangerous thing to do, but I think I had to do it. What happened in the interim is I'd been offered the job as Artistic Director of Music of Eva Australia. And music of Eva is the biggest entrepreneur of chamber music in the world, not just in Australia. It's one of the biggest concert organisers in the world as well.
1: When you say the entre- biggest entrepreneur of chamber music? Well,
0: it, it doesn't have a resident ensemble. It's not an ensemble. It presents concerts and it encourages ensembles. It puts on, it changes every year, but about 2,200 concerts a year in Australia. Now, most of those, 2,000 of those are educational concerts. They're concerts mostly to primary schools all around Australia and mm. some secondary schools. And then there's another 100 concerts in major capital city venues. And that, that is my particular province. And I, t- I took it on almost as a dare, I didn't think I'd be any good at it. But I thought, well, I'm not doing anything else. At the time, I was doing web design to make cash. So I was doing web design, and I was sort of IT manager at a small publishing company. And that was my day job. And I thought, oh, well, I'll try this for a bit and it was a one-third This is like Kafka and the
1: time. Patent or Einstein and the Patent Office. Yeah, well, of, pretty yeah. much, yeah.
0: Although yeah. uh, well, the other way around because he did that when he was 18, I think, <laughs> <laughs> and I was in my 40s doing it. Um, but I, it was nice to know that I could learn... Three new computer languages at the age of 40. That that was good to know. Do you have, good I'm mistake. sorry
1: to defer. Do you have mathematical training then?
0: Only that I did a BSc. Right. Well, right. I, but I never completed it. And I, I was a physics major at school and maths and physics were always very good. And I Yes. did my first computer program in 1966. Right. So I'd, I'd worked a lot with computers. So you're so a pretty good fun. meld of left and right yeah, brain now. Absolutely. So all of that was going on and in the process of working with Music Viva, it has a a floating audience nationally in Australia of about 20,000 people. As artistic director, I spent the first couple of years, I had to travel around, I met all the local committees, there's an office in every state, and talked to the audience and tried to work out what the company Hmm. did. And I discovered that although I'd written all of this music, I had basically been in my little ivory tower, not aware of the end result. There are people all around Australia who live for music, and not just turning on the radio and hearing the latest hit, the the top ten or whatever is on at the moment, but they will go out of their way to go and listen to a Beethoven string quartet, or they will occasionally go out of the way and go and listen to a Carl Vine string quartet, and this was a revelation And I'd regarded it, I don't know, I hadn't really looked at the social impact of what I was doing as a composer. Mm. But this presented to me the fact that this was really important to a lot of people. It's only, you know, one or two percent of the population, but to that one or two percent it's really important. I thought, "This, this I can get behind. And that's the point at which I started to compose again.
1: So tell me about the process of composing. I mean, there's, uh, you hear these stories of uh, those composers who take a house by a lake and uh, compose as they walk, uh, those who work late in the evening, those who stay, who work in the morning. Do you, have, do you have routines and approaches that you get into when you're composing?
0: When I'm composing, if I'm composing well, I get up at 8 o'clock, have my breakfast, and I start work at 9 And i work through till five or six o'clock, have a break for lunch. And if I can maintain that, then that's a good day. And at my best, I can keep that going for two or three months. Um, There are times when, and that also teaches you to marshal your mind better and Mm. marshal your ideas better. And so there's a whole realm of ongoing self-training to, to maintain that. Every now and then you hit a brick wall, which is anybody who has written a term paper or written an article or written anything, mm. you will know that feeling of running to a brick wall. You just don't have the next idea. And that happens. And occasionally with me, I can go two or three months of Just hitting my head against a brick wall, very common in composers, artists, painters, novelists, and so I'm familiar with that. You eventually get over it, and then you just start again.
1: Where do you go for inspiration? I mean, do you do you walk? Do you travel? How do you how do you try and break out of those uh, the the creative block?
0: Watching movies helps, yeah. but just just doing anything that's that's out of out of the ordinary.
1: Uh, Old movies?
0: Uh, no, and often uh, sometimes really tacky movies are helpful or movies with this big, really obvious uh, music score. Uh, so Hollywood block- blockbusters mm. are great because you have this, all of this visual action going on and a rather tacky piece of music, but the overall effect is quite overwhelming and that, that I find quite useful.
1: So it's less about inspiration and more about just trying to break a break a block. Is yes, that how absolutely, yeah.
0: absolutely. Yeah. And I I think that would be true of anyone with a creative block like that.
1: And when you're working this sort of quite orderly nine-to-five work, uh, working routine, are you at your desk the whole time? Are you or often sort of uh, at, the, at the piano or, or at other instruments? If, if it's... What would we see if we walked in upon you? Yeah,
0: you would see me sitting at a, an electric piano keyboard and a computer. So that, that is my working method. And if it's going well, and particularly as I'm near the end of the work... And if it's a large work, say a half-hour symphony, I can be working on it for six months, end to end. And so, in the last couple of months of that, I can do that for six days a week, yeah. uh, regularly working nine
1: to five. And uh, I've never composed, so I suppose I'm sort of reaching from for written analogies here. Uh, is it more like your? Banging out a whole rough draft and then going back and editing, or getting each uh, working through and getting getting perfection as you as you move through the score.
0: It it'll be a mixture of both, and so occasionally, in very literal terms, it'll be the idea of a texture. So thinking, well, I can hear some flutes and something Mm. low on the Mm. strings, or uh, the equivalent with a book would be. I guess, the synopsis, thinking of, well, these characters relate, how do they relate and what are they going to do? And then you knock it into shape, which is a bit like sculpting. So you start off with a very rough outline of the shape and then you whittle away at it until mm. you reveal yeah. exactly what it is. So it's a combination of the two. Sometimes, contrarily, and I, don't, I can't think of a literary equivalent, uh, writing out actual melodic parts for a number of instruments... And then seeing that, well, that particular combination of things doesn't work. What can I do to them so that yes. they do work? And I suppose the equivalent would be writing a poem at that point. And you actually, you've just got the wrong words there. You just need to I sculpt see. the words better.
1: And you've recently been working on a piece which is grounded in a piece of writing, that your five hallucinations based on Oliver Sacks writings. Did you? Uh, how often did you dip back into Sachs as you were writing that music?
0: Having decided on the hallucinations, not that often. I have to... Because I've i been reading Oliver Sachs for some years and he's a wonderful writer but such mm. a, an amazing mind, just an absolutely inspiring mind. I... When I read the book through, it never occurred to me that I'd use it as the basis for a piece of music. But the commissioner of the trombone concerto, Michael Mulcahy, wanted me to use something literary, and I'm pretty sure he was thinking of a short story or a poem or something like that. And uh, there were just a number of chapter headings in the Oliver Sacks book, such as The Lemonade Speaks or the doppelganger just these wonderful little ideas that kind of encapsulate a whole and you you kind of know what these things are but they're they're just really intriguing and so I went back and read the whole book again immediately and picked out about 40 of these possible titles to actually use in the music and at the same time went through and made sure that the because these are all case files of actual patients that Oliver Sacks had been treating at mm. some point in his career and made sure that their, the case history was in fact nothing too disgusting or, or too off-putting, but that in fact they were interesting cases that I could then do something with musically.
1: Beautiful. How do you listen to music?
0: Very analytically. <laughs> so I rarely listen to music for pleasure.
1: This is, reminds me of my uh, uh, Year 7 music teacher who uh, gave us a big screed against Muzak early on and said one should never have music, music on in the background, it should always be focused listening. And I think probably the only person in the class who sort of took him to heart was my friend Kate Fagan who uh, uh, performed with her family in a uh, well-known folk music group called the called the Fagans and uh, uh, for them the the... Listening and the production were, uh, were intertwined, but for the rest of us, I don't think we could ever stay uh, stay up to that standard. Do you do you do you think we shouldn't listen to music in the background? Should it not be played in our shopping centres and uh, in our elevators?
0: It's certainly I hate it when it's on in the background. And occasionally I've gone around to someone's place for dinner, and they've said, "Oh, we, just, we, we got your new CD. We're going to put it on over dinner." I said, "No, please don't do that." <laughs> Please, if you are going to listen to it at all, don't be doing something else. And look, music has many different functions. And uh, if you are dancing to music, that's fine. That's terrific. But uh, my music is not written as background. There is some music that is. And there are people who write music to be played in elevators. That's fine. That's terrific. I don't know that the Beatles really wanted to be played in elevators. I'm pretty sure they didn't. Uh, And they would be horrified and, you know, they uh, wrote some terrific tunes that really should be listened to as as real music. So it's a question of intention, I think. So I write music that conveys a great deal of information. Don't put it on the background. Don't play it at all. (laughs) If, 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 you, if you can't do me the, the, you know, um, the honour of listening to it with, a, with a, an, an open and focused mind, then don't bother because it, it, it won't give anything to you. It is not designed for that as background. So, I, yes, I, I think there is music that can work in the background, but I think why? And the only reason they do it in shopping centres is to lull you into this false sense of things happening when nothing is actually happening.
1: What about in the teaching of music? I've got three little boys uh, who I would lo- and I would love as a parent to develop their musical sensibilities. Uh, you must have thought hard about how uh, one one parents well musically. Uh, what what advice do you have to offer there?
0: Well, it, it's tricky because music learning music, apart from hopefully giving great pleasure expands the brain in ways that are just coming to be understood. And that's one of the wonderful things that Oliver Sacks wrote about in his book Musicophilia, about the way that simply listening to music sparks up your brain in more activity centres than any other human activity. So it is left-sided, as is right-sided, it's pattern recognition, it's memory, it is language it is analysis, all of these things all spark at once just from listening to music. Mm. So imagine what happens when you play a musical instrument. You have all of that, plus all of the eye-hand coordination, all of the reading ability, the conceptualization of what you're doing. It is the most extraordinary human activity and it is now well established that children who learn music, particularly to play a musical instrument, are better students at everything. So it particularly helps scientific learning. So maths and physics, mm. you will be be a better physician or a mathematician if you play a musical instrument.
1: Was your science training crucial to your composing?
0: No, I, I don't think so at all. Certainly... Uh, mathematical concepts probably trigonometry helped more than anything okay. the, the idea of proportion and not having to really concentrate on things like fractions so fractions are very important in music uh, differential equations not so important mm. in music mm. but the idea of set theory is actually very important so there's a lot of mathematical concepts that reflect in music but you can then you don't need the mathematical mathematical training to Learn how to deal with them.
1: Yes, yes, it, it is great fun. One of my real pleasures is watching our boys fight over access to the piano. Oh, uh, terrific! And, uh, it's uh, my wife's a, wife's a pianist, and the boys have uh, have taken to uh, taken to it, and it's just one of those one of those activities that they regard as fun. Whereas I, when I was growing up, I, my brother and I both had to be told to, pra- to practice by our, by our parents. Uh, Our boys don't seem to to need that.
0: I I would say that if you have to tell your child to practice the instrument, don't. Because if they are not drawn to the thing naturally, no matter how many times you make them do it, it's not going to make it any better. And it will tend to have the opposite effect and they'll resent having to do it. Mm. Uh, And I have a, a good friend who's a very fine pianist and she has two lovely children Neither of them, and in fact everybody in her family was a a musician. Uh, One, two, three, four siblings, they were all very great musicians and her two children are simply not. And she learnt very wisely to stop trying to force them Mm. because it wouldn't make the slightest difference. It was still valuable for them to learn music at school and maybe play a little bit, but simply, as I said, simply listening to music and analysing music helps your brain become a better brain. If you have the inkling to go further, that's terrific. And then as a parent, obviously, you just encourage it.
1: So let me wrap up by asking you a couple of questions that I ask all of my interviewees. What advice would you give to your teenage self, Carl?
0: Yes, I knew this question was coming, and I've, I've tossed it backwards and forwards. And in fact, I wouldn't tell my teenage self anything apart from anything else, teenage boys, as you, if you are not already aware, will certainly become aware, uh, cannot be told anything. (laughs) (laughs) They are certain that they have all of the answers. So the only thing that you can say is that you know nothing. But that isn't actually terribly helpful. And all of the mistakes I've made, all of the bad choices I've made in my life, have made me what I am. Should I not have made those choices? And there's nothing like making mistakes to teach you a lesson you will not forget. It doesn't matter who tells you what life is about, learning for yourself is the only way you will actually learn.
1: What's something you used to believe, but no longer do?
0: Uh, I used to believe, as a teenager, that my uh, incredible mind would change the world. And I don't think that's true. I think I've contributed to the world. I've not made it a different place. I think I've... I would like to think now that I have contributed, that I've made the world a better place. I have not changed it, ultimately. I used to think the power of artistic creation could actually change society. I don't think... I think that was rather too rosy a view.
1: Is that because you think that no composer has changed the world or could change the world or is it a statement about your where you see yourself in the in the pantheon of composers no i think
0: i think no composer has changed the world i think einstein changed the world but that is a realization about physical properties i think i cannot think of a work of art that has changed the world
1: yes People tend to draw the distinction, I guess, between painting and music and books. And, uh, you know, clearly there's a category category of books that have changed the world. And and
0: certainly, so philosophy has certainly changed the world. But Mm. uh, you can't, there are no verbs in music. That's that's a sentence that I could um,
1: spend an hour pondering. (laughs) When are you most happy?
0: Uh, When I'm at home with my partner, normally watching TV or reading a book.
1: Not composing. I thought you were going to talk about flow and being in the midst of, of production.
0: Look, Could composing is frequently a painful process. Yes. Uh, and I have other composer friends who virtually have stopped composing because they find it too painful. And it is particularly if the ideas aren't flowing freely. If they're flowing freely, you just feel relieved. Thank <laughs> God I don't have to force this out today. Most of the time, you're thinking, I've got to have another idea, I've got to have another idea and I'm doing it tomorrow and I'm doing it the day after that and the day after that. And it really is, it's not terrifying but it's a a tough process and we all have things that we have to do Mm. and that's one of them. But the only time that composing feels good is as I'm just about to finish a commission and then I feel terrific for about three days and then I start on the next one.
1: So that... Agonising suffering of Beethoven is uh, is the norm rather than the exception. It is composers. the norm.
0: <laughs> it is the norm, absolutely. I don't, you know, ha- he was such a, a creative marvel that I don't know it was such a struggle for him because he had so many ideas even up to his death. Mind you, if I was Beethoven's age, I would have died 13 years ago. But... <laughs> um, yeah he had so many ideas I don't think it was a problem for him, but it is it is uh, hard work mm.
1: what's the most important thing you do to stay me- mentally and physically healthy?
0: Well, physically healthy, not nearly enough. Uh, I, I used to exercise some way every day, but in fact, I blamed five hallucinations, <laughs> which was I started two years ago. It was such an important commission because it was a premiere by the Chicago Symphony. For three months, I did absolutely nothing but write music. I mean literally nothing. I wouldn't even go out for lunch. I would ah. have a boiled egg for lunch and get up at eight and spend my eight hours a day, nine hours a day. And that somehow has changed my metabolism. I find it really, really hard to exercise anymore. And so I'm, I'm trying to turn that around. In terms of mental activity, I... In that way, I'm really lucky because the great thing about any creative pursuit is, if you're doing it right, is that you are permanently in a state of... It's a meditative state. You have to keep all of the current project in your mind at once and put Mm. the pieces together in your head. So the brain has almost a permanent workout. As long as I'm composing, my brain is working. Do you have any guilty pleasures? Yes, chocolate. (laughs) So I really shouldn't eat chocolate at all, but I do enjoy it so. Uh,
1: And finally, which person or experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? Uh,
0: Probably Oliver Sacks. How so? Well, he was such an intriguing man, particularly, I'm just reading his His last autobiography, again, which was uh, was called Moving On, I think, Um, his approach to life is so extraordinary. It turns out I've met people who have spent time with him and apparently he was this mess of um, obsessive-compulsive behaviours. And, of course, this doesn't come through in the writing. You're not aware of that. But I I suspect because of that, because he had his own... Uh, Mental problems, as it were, he regards everybody with mental problems as an intriguing case study, Mm. including himself. And a lot of what he did was looking at himself as a case study by looking at other people. And it's a way of looking at the world and looking at people as a collection of things they'd probably rather not be and accepting all of it. So never once in any of his books does he call anyone crazy. Mm. And he is dealing with some seriously crazy people, including himself, and just regarding them as all as these intriguing puzzles to be solved.
1: Yes, the lack of judgment. And, yes. uh, and uh, I'm, I also the way he comes to love so late in life is, uh, is just is truly beautiful.
0: Uh, indeed. And, well, that he tried early on. Yes. But it was massively difficult for him. But as you say, it is the lack—the lack of judge. Well, uh, judge, judgmentalism is what he yeah. lacks. Yes. He has—he has plenty of judgment, but he's not judgmental.
1: Absolutely. Uh, and Calvin, thank you for uh, not being judgmental of uh, a musical naif like myself, and for sharing your wisdom on life and music and composing. It's been a, a real delight to speak with you today. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life. If you like this podcast, please let your friends know on your favourite social media app. And if you are interested in politics or policy, you might want to check out my Andrew Lee Speeches and Conversations podcast, including a recent speech on reducing inequality. Next week, I'll be back with a new guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.